Welcome to the Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, my goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices, instead look for the processes and the questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I'm Will Patch, Enrollment Marketing Leader at Niche, and my guest today is Marie Bigham. Marie is the founder and executive director of Accept, which is the admissions community cultivating equity and peace today, which is an advocacy group a community, and I'd say a movement that centers racial justice in the college admissions process and profession. She also serves as the coordinator of Hack the Gates. Marie has almost 25 years of college admissions and college counseling experience. Welcome, and thanks for making time to chat today, Marie. Thanks so much, Will. I'm glad to be here. I'm honored to be here. Well, this is great. I have been listening to you on podcasts for a while, so this is actually really, really cool to get to chat with you today. Thank you. Well, I'm going to start off here with two questions I ask everybody. I really love the answers to these, so hopefully everyone else does too. What's something you tried that didn't work, and what did you learn? This question, this is a tough one, right? Because it, it cuts to your ego, and it makes you examine failure. When I was still a college counselor, I was at Green Hill School in Dallas. Fantastic school, and we were trying to innovate some things. And the, the question amongst the senior leadership team was, how could we move course registration online? And okay. I... As someone who doesn't do course registration and was not the registrar, very arrogantly was like, oh, I could totally come up with a system to help with that. And I did my research and didn't do great research and came up with the timeline and didn't stick to that. And, 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 and there I was rolling out a system and a process to 400 students, their family, all of the faculty. I would give myself a B minus on the overall of how it went <laughs> in that students were registered eventually. Okay. And there were all kinds of things that happened throughout the project that were absolutely my responsibility and some that were not, including the company we worked with entirely changing their product midway through without informing us. But talk about like, That's a, an adjustment. that was, that was great. That was <laughs> super great. Yeah, there was, it was, yeah. But that was a little moment of humility for me. That was something that I, again, I, in my mind, oh, this, this is an issue that should not be hard to fix. And I approached it without enough information, without enough humility um, without sticking to the timeline and, um, demonstrated to, to a very large number of people that I, again, it was a B minus, it wasn't a failure, but it wasn't great. And we learned. And so. I learned a lot. <laughs> I learned a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. Is it kind of that curse of the high achiever that everything is always works? So, Hey, let's solve this problem too. You're a problem solver. It's interesting that you frame it that way. Cause on one hand, yeah, I think a lot of it comes from that arrogance. I would say it's like the curse of the gifted child, right? Like you're told yeah. young, you can read fast, you could do this. So of course you can just do these things. And yeah. so I think there's some of it that is the arrogance of, well, of course I can just do these things. Some of it is the fearlessness that comes with that too, of like, well, of course I can just do these things. I'm just going to try it and yeah. see what happens. And I think I don't want to ever lose that fearlessness of putting myself mm -hmm. out there and trying something that might not work. But what I hope I've lost since then is the arrogance that I had of not approaching this new task, like I said, with more humility. Now you can have measured fearlessness. Yeah, exactly. Still be fearless, but okay, more here's where form. we need to bring other people in. Exactly. Perhaps more, more team-oriented fearlessness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now I'm curious and, and play a little bit of what if with me here. If that hadn't happened, do you think you would have tried to tackle some of these projects more solo and not bring in yeah. this huge community with you. Absolutely. Um, and, and truthfully, that is still my tendency for a lot mm -hmm. of, um, I don't know, all kinds of reasons that my therapist and I have been delving into for a very long time, right? I tend to move really fast. 
and I tend mm-hmm. to move, I guess, with a lot of fear, sometimes with a lot of fearlessness. And mm-hmm. sometimes I think I should take the risk myself before bringing others and community with me. Let me let me test this and fail so that others don't have to. Like sometimes mm-hmm. that informs it. Sometimes it is the arrogance of like, I'm just going to do this, I'm going to do this. I don't want to wait for people to move along with me. So sometimes it's oh. impatience. So it's, it's a compulsion I, I, I struggle with, but I try really hard and have had far more success in my life when I take risks when there's a team. I know that logically. It's just being better about practice all the time. This is great just because I'm seeing myself and what you're saying mm-hmm. too much, but do you see yourself, you want to do all these things, so you wind up taking on too much yeah. and trying to do it all, and then you have a hundred great ideas that if you had just taken the time to slow down, you could have had... 90 great things. Instead, you have a whole bunch of okay things and a few great things. It's something I constantly struggle with. It is a constant battle. Again, that's the, how far can I push myself? Like, what is that outer edge of my performance? Right? And, oh, snap, this is it. (laughs) (laughs) Finding that balance is really tough, I think. Um, It's also, for me, it's a part of my ADHD to constantly say that. And it's one of those things I constantly work on. I also don't want to ever disappoint people. You know, I don't like disappointing people. And if someone asks me to do something, I feel like, oh, gosh, there's a reason they asked me. I step back and be like, I might have just been next to them at that moment. Or, you know, this is not something singular. Or they know you'll always say yes. Or they know you'll always say (laughs) yes. Right? Yeah. There's a lot that goes into that. What are some of the practices you're using to brainstorm and come up with all these great ideas and then bring them back into your work? I found this to be such an interesting question because I I can't honestly tell you that I have practices or that I mm-hmm. that I'm intentional about idea generation. And as I was thinking about this, my my criticism to myself, my moment of learning was maybe I need I need to be more intentional. I need to develop different tactics, right? So thinking yeah. about that question, I I would say I'm I tend to always be in the space of brainstorming and thinking about ideas and solutions and running them through my head in an internal conversation or, and having them out loud with people. Like, mm-hmm. what if I, I love throwing out those, let's wrestle with a big idea question or how would you solve this? And to, to the annoyance sometimes of people, sometimes that draws <laughs> out good ideas. And I, I'm always that person who like informal brainstorming moments. I'm like, could we reframe it this way? Could we think of it this way? Like I'm always trying to, see the different angles and come up with different solutions. So I think I, I can't identify specific practices because I'm in my mind, it just seems to be the constant running narration is how could this be better? Yeah. How could this? And I tend to find myself really drawn to people who tend to think in that way as well. So it's like every moment is a brainstorm. It's when do you stop that and make decisions and develop actions that it requires more discipline. Yeah. How do you move from the idea to the, action to the right. the solution. That's where the yeah. real, that's where the team I think gets to be so invaluable. I think over the last couple of years what I've really kind of tried to learn about myself and organizations is that as a leader or as a founder I don't have to play every role to everybody. I mm-hmm. know what my strengths are, right? I know I know what I'm good at, I know what I'm not as good at, and that's constantly shifting. So how you take that moment of great, great ideas and idea generation and regeneration, all that, and then say, stop, make decision to move forward. To me, that's having a good team and having those people around you who can say, all right, well, we've done this this far. Like, this lets me forward. And I'm, I'm very lucky to have that. You need those people who can organize and mm-hmm. do and make sure things get done, even, even if they aren't maybe the ones who are coming up with the original ideas, right? Right. right? 
Exactly. We, you can't have an organization or a structure or institution that's all people just generating ideas. It's fun. Yeah. Nothing will get done. You'll have tons of great ideas. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, my desk, my whole, my stand up rolling desk, the whole surface mm. is whiteboard. Oh, that's the dream. <laughs> I got to tell you, this is truly one of the best purchases of my life. But you have to have other structures in place. It's people mm. to move forward, people to think differently, to have different speed. I think that's really important. Oh, and now into the the part that I'm really excited. I, I love this, that we can kind of talk through it and, and figure this out as we go. Yeah. Uh, one one thing that, that always interests me is language and the words that we choose to use. I don't think that they're accidental. So how is the language surrounding inclusion, belonging, diversity changing? Yeah. And is that meaning changing? I know we initially talked about there's very, very different scales in here. Yeah. You can talk about tolerance well that doesn't that doesn't mean the same thing right. as love that doesn't mean the same thing as welcoming as right. how is this changing yeah such an interesting question um, and and as soon as you posed it i immediately turned to what i think is the seminal piece of writing so relevant at this moment um it's by dr dl stewart it was published in inside higher ed and the the piece is called the language of appeasement and the headline of it's provocative. You know, it says language in higher ed needs to change, but not how you think. And so I just want to read this, just this short blurb from it. And um, I, you know, I'll send the link and the graphics because it's so yeah. good. But I think this is clear. Dr. Stewart says, diversity asks who is in the room. Equity responds, who is trying to get in the room but can't? Whose presence in the room is under constant threat of erasure? Inclusion asks, have everyone's ideas been heard? But justice responds, whose ideas won't be taken seriously because they aren't in the majority? Diversity asks, how many more of, pick an identity, is going to be enough? Equity responds, what conditions have we created that maintain that certain groups are the perpetual majority? Inclusion asks, is this environment safe for everyone to feel like they belong? But justice challenges whose safety is being sacrificed and minimized to allow mm. others to be comfortable to maintain dehumanizing ideas. It's big. That is not something light. Yeah. That is not something that can be an easy tattoo or wristband, right? Yeah. <laughs> Those are big ideas. But when mm -hmm. I think about language, that's immediately what I went to. Because you know, he said, we've gone on this journey of how we talk about diversity. That word is like so many words. And we started... Mm -hmm. The organization was called Teaching Tolerance, one of the first organizations that brought these ideas into schools. And they recently changed their name, right? Tolerance yeah. says, I'm going to let you be here and follow like with stink face, right? Yeah. Then we went to, we went diversity. Well, what, what does that mean? And that's such a squishy, jello-y idea that gets so perverted and twisted, you know? But the ideas of equity and justice, like those are the ideas that appeal to me when I think even about the language and the straightforwardness of it. I want to know that my rights are the same as others. I want to know that I will be treated the same as others. And if not, that there is a process that will see me and stand up for me and to fix those ills, you know? I hate the question of how many is enough, you know, inclusion, like that's that checklist, right? Because who decides what's enough? Yeah. You know, I, I think about the great, hi, Julie Departed, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was asked how many women are enough on the Supreme Court. And she said, well, nine. And the interviewer was mortified. Why would you say nine? She's like, no one ever asked the men if nine was enough. I mean, you know, 
<laughs> who decides what's enough? Like that's in the eye typically of the majority. And so the ideas of, of equity and justice, when I think about even the language, like that's what speaks to me. I also know that those are words that are really scary to institutions. It's much softer, much easier to talk about diversity, to talk about inclusion. Those are, those are warm, fuzzy words. I want the hard stuff. But then using the words and not meaning them. Exactly. Like you see, you see everyone this past year started having diversity, equity, and inclusion offices, diversity, mm -hmm. equity, and inclusion VPs. What? Right. Okay. What does that mean though? Right. Saying that, well, we have someone who handles inclusion. What? How? That's one person's job. Exactly. <laughs> Like that, that's an enormous concept to leave in the hands of one person, which makes it one responsibility, right? Like yeah. if it falls into one space and that's not, it's not what the work should be. Like when you talk about inclusion, that's talk, that's inclusion is about changing a culture from start yeah. to finish. And that's a big thing, you yeah. know, that's making room for people, which for some means there's a zero sum game. That means others won't be there. Right. So yeah, those are really big words. And when I see that, you know, indoors diversity, equity, inclusion, it just kind of runs together. I yeah. care more about the actions that follow it and the results. And I, I worry too, if you if you have a a person who is in charge of diversity, equity, right. inclusion rather than a culture of, right. then it becomes, well, that's their job, not our job. And so much of that is it really is structural. And I'm thinking about um, a, a school where I worked that had nobody in charge of the work and the philosophy of mm -hmm. that head was well diversity is important enough that everyone should be doing it if we assign it like one job then, then that one person will do it and i had a very snarky snapback i said you're right diversity is so important that no one should be responsible for it just like english is so important that we don't have a department chair or requirements just like athletics are so important that we don't expect everybody to take a sport okay mm -hmm. well that's my snarky comeback but I, I agree. I get very nervous when I see, particularly like enrollment management org charts, when I see our multicultural team, our diversity team. What that signals mm -hmm. to me is, oh, you have a group of people who you hired all of your brown and black people, you put them in that pile, and you're mm -hmm. going to send them to specifics, regions, schools, and CBOs. And they don't touch this other part of recruitment, which means other part of recruitment doesn't touch the diversity part either. And so when I see that in org charts, I get nervous about the siloing. Yeah. But when I see an org chart that doesn't have someone in charge, I get nervous that it is a quality that is not important enough to rise the level of leadership. So that's a fine balance. That's a good point. I guess I'd I'd see it more as if there's if there's a group of people doing it rather than a person who is in charge of it. But yeah, I guess it it can easily get lost then if you don't have a person in charge too. It it can and it's um I say all this and it's just about looking at an org chart and just titles mm -hmm. and things, right? It really is about the implementation and the culture. Who is responsible for the work, right? Mm -hmm. We're all responsible for the work in enrollment management, but it's we have to make we have to make these goals as important. Seeing schools talking about and using the words inclusion or belonging or welcoming, are there times where you're where you're seeing it done really well in terms of we aren't just saying the words, but we are able to showcase it versus everyone put out, here's our diversity statement. Here's our piece with that, that looks like it could have just been a stock photo. And Oy, that's a great question. It's, it is hard to gauge how mm -hmm. one authentically can talk about belonging broadly. Right. And, and I'm saying that for any community, for anyone, it's hard to, 
it's hard to make that tangible enough to put into a brochure or to yeah. a website, right? Because how do you how do you boil that down without becoming cliche? When I'm thinking about specifically for marginalized communities like people of color, so that's when I get really picky about what I see in publications mm-hmm. and in marketing. Because if I see those pictures of brown and black faces only in specific spaces on the website, only on, you know, if it's tokenized, that makes me very, very, very anxious and says that there's nothing authentic mm-hmm. about this belonging, right? Like you found the kid and you put them up front and oh, look, there's that kid's face again over and over and over again. But it's interesting because I, I, and thinking about the question, like, what do these things mean? How do you, how do you talk about belonging and community and things like that authentically mm-hmm. to go down a philosophical rabbit hole? I like that kind of rabbit yeah, hole. Yeah, I kind of got this space <laughs> of, is the belonging defined only in absence? Ooh. And by that, I mean, it's so hard to define what it is to belong that mm-hmm. the only language I could come up with is what it meant to not belong. You know when you're not welcome, but right? how do you know you're welcome? How do you know when you're beyond welcome, when you belong, when you are rooted, yeah. when, to use the aquarium fishbowl analogy, how do you not notice the water around you? Because it's just so much a part of you. And sometimes I worry for people mm-hmm. from marginalized communities, it's hard to get to that place of belonging in those structures because they're so not built for us and not welcoming and we're so meant mm-hmm. to feel like we're supposed to be you know, honored to be there for someone else's education. So I'm thinking about that a lot. What is it about belonging that in my mind, in this space of thinking about how you're right, I can only think about it in terms of absence of? Hmm. I don't really know what that is. That's an interesting way of framing it. It could also be a Friday at the end of a long <laughs> week where we had tornadoes in New Orleans and a yeah. boil. It might just be my cranky headspace, but I'm not. I mean, it's it's just something I've, I've just really been chewing on yeah. a lot as a philosophical question. How does one define how do you capture the idea of belonging without going to the absence of? Interesting. Now I wonder about the same thing. If you're asking someone, we just recently did a, a survey of, of high school juniors, and we, one of the questions we asked was about safety and, and do you feel safe? And I wonder now about that flip side. Is it more valuable to ask, do you feel unsafe? Let's chew on this. That's really interesting because now I'm like, okay, safety is something that like warm embrace, it's a big blanket, right? But I'm, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about this in a really specific thing, a, a long conversation my husband and I had one time. We lived in Dallas and we were walking up the street to our favorite deli because it is really good cake and I needed a slice of cake. But it was like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night and we lived adjacent to downtown Dallas. So busy, a lot of people, but it was late at night. And as we were walking three blocks to this place, I did my usual, if I were walking by myself at night, and I walked straight down the middle of the street. My husband is a 6'3 white guy. And he was like, why are you doing that? And I said, well, if you look at the sidewalks on this particular street, there aren't any lights. And the sidewalks are kind of covered with a lot of overhang on these trees. Mm-hmm. And this one's adjacent to this parking lot that has this kind of blind entry. And I'm like, I'm a small woman. I'm a small woman of color. And if I'm walking by myself at 1030 at night down this dark street, I would rather someone see me with a car coming at me, then someone not see me and the danger that could happen in those sidewalk spaces. Hmm. And my husband was mortified. He had no idea that would ever enter my mind and like ask, did something happen? I'm like, no, nothing happened. It's just a sense of safety. I feel more safe walking down the middle of the street at night 
than walking down the sidewalks where it's completely dark and covered and all these spaces and I don't know what could happen. So thinking about that question of safety, is it something that you just always know or is that defined by absence of danger, absence of fear? Hmm. So then your question of do you feel safe, maybe it would be interesting to pose the opposite direction. Yeah. When don't you feel safe? It's much easier to say I feel unsafe when Mm -hmm. than to say I feel safe when. Right. And I think that same thing goes for belonging, for welcoming, for mm-hmm. inclusion. Yeah. You know, I, I can think of times I felt excluded. It's harder to say when I feel included, I guess. Yeah. I think perhaps this is a very this is a very first draft of a thought. So I think this yeah. is it. But we're I, thinking I, these things out. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if the if some more negative emotions come with more jagged edges and so perhaps they're more memorable whereas the more generous emotions are like again it's a little less jagged it's more like a big warm fuzzy blanket yeah yeah i don't know terrible metaphors (laughs) Uh, but they work too i still remember pairs of shoes that were uncomfortable but i couldn't tell you my favorite pair of socks (laughs) oh i bet we could (laughs) you thought really but maybe yeah. that's it. If you had, maybe you had to think really long and hard to be like, oh, I had these socks. They were cashmere. They felt like clouds. They were amazing. Like maybe yeah. it takes more to remember that than, yeah. yeah, I had to cut my toes off to fit into those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it could just be too because I, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to always have, and I feel like we're going too much down this, yeah. this metaphor. But I've always been fortunate to have shoes that fit most of my life. Yeah. But for someone who maybe has never had shoes that fit or yeah. has really had access to shoes, they would flip it and yeah. they would remember the really positive and the pain would just be, oh, yeah, no, that was all the rest of the time. That's really interesting. That's a really like someone who never feels that. included, never feels welcome, mm-hmm. would really identify with the times and the places they do yeah. and couldn't really tell you the other because that's the norm. So, so a little bit about me as just kind of a tangent here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm multiracial. I'm Vietnamese mm-hmm. and white, and I've always said that my always by this I mean like maybe the last 10, 12 years of my life I did I did not have this kind of self awareness or confidence as a child. Trust me, but I come to think of my multiracial experience as my superpower in that I always know what it is to be in and out. I always have a view of privilege and not privilege. Like there's a constant duality to it. I've always mm-hmm. been the person, like I've only attended independent schools, private schools and worked for those institutions. And I always always like to be the scholarship kid at those places, right? But it is to be welcomed into a space, but then not to be heard because of other identities. And so to me, an insight that I felt like I've always had in my life, like you say, like, what do you know? How do you know your shoes don't fit or not, right? Like my yeah. shoes always fit, I don't have that pain. I think one of the one of my life experiences that, that's informed a lot of my work is constantly having that view. And I don't know if it's just that one shoe always fit and that one shoe was always falling apart. Like, I don't know how to stretch that metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I always thought of it yeah. as like the, the sense of constantly being both in and out and knowing what it means to have the opposite. When you are multiracial, your parents don't have that life experience either. Hmm. And so the role yeah. models that you often turn to, to say this is happening, like you don't have that in them. And so you, you turn siblings or other people 
for much of my life, I thought it was the, of my deficiency in every community. Hmm. And I've tried to now frame that as I am whole in exactly who I am. And that's how I come to each community. I come to the Vietnamese community as Vietnamese. I go to the white community mm -hmm. as, as white. And I am still Vietnamese and white in each of those, regardless. What society taught me, to, what the world taught me to always think of is I'm not enough in either. I've, I've landed in a place of I am exactly who I am and I am enough for any. But that takes a lot of, you know, a lot that, of work. A lot that of probably took some time to realize, Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's, yeah. that's when I reframe it to, oh, this life experience is my superpower. Yeah. This is, this is my superpower because I can see I have more vision for more experience in that way. And so I've, I tried to think about that way. There was a phrase you used that I wanted to dive back to, mm -hmm. welcomed but not heard. Can you describe that sure. some more, how you felt welcomed and yet still oh, unheard? Yeah. No, welcome not heard. That's what inclusion leads to. That's what diversity leads to. You're welcome here. Mm -hmm. We want you here. Yeah. And in parentheses, and we expect you to be like us. And we expect you to fit in and to assimilate. And yeah. when you are not that, we're not going to hear it because, hey, we welcomed you. Yeah. You're at the table. Isn't that enough? Yeah, that's what I mean. And, and you know, for people feeling for women, we're told constantly, you fight as hard as you can. You get that seat at the table or you drag that seat up, you know, right there with you. Like, yeah, I've done all those things. And then there have been moments where regardless, it's still too much. Right. Mm -hmm. We, you know, I'll be really blunt, like with the NACAC board, I served on the NACAC board 2013 to 2016, very privileged. I am either the first Asian possibly second, but we're not certain of one person's identity, which says a lot, to serve on NACAC's board. Isn't that crazy? NACAC's been around for a while. 80 years. <laughs> and when you look at the representation just on that board, like it's the number has up until a year, two years ago, the number of people of color has always been either zero to tiny, mm -hmm. right? But it's limited. And it seemed like there was an upper limit. And so, yeah, you go into that space and you're like, Okay, I barely got here and there's no one else around me. What do I tamp down? What do I what do I not bring to the table? How authentic can mm -hmm. I be? And when I am authentic, how's that received? That's when I think you get that sense of like, I'm welcome, but I'm not heard. Yeah. And then do you have to be the one constantly championing XYZ causes? Right. Uh, you know, because there's probably 50 things you care about. Totally, 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 yeah. totally. Do I always have to be the voice of that? Yeah. Um, similar to that, I, a couple of months ago, I was on this panel, you know, you have another webinar, and it was about higher ed. It was mm -hmm. all women of color, and not a single one of us spoke about that experience. That was not the lens that we were there for. I was talking about community building. One person was talking about legal issues and was talking about data. None of us were like, as a woman of color, here I am. And it was so refreshing and so cool hmm. and so unusual. And we all noted that later. How great was that for us to be in that space, to be there for mm -hmm. our intellectual capacity and creativity and not have to be first and foremost, our identities and to be seen only that. And yeah. It was really cool. That's one of the things I've become more aware of over the past couple of years is just how often someone gets put in a bucket of, well, we're going to talk about X. Hey, we'll bring in this person. Mm -hmm. You get shoved off in this corner of that's your expertise. And right. it's, it's not. It's something I can talk about, I'm sure. Right. Like 
that's something that you can talk about, but you've got so many more dimensions. Right. We are large. We contain multitudes. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be exhausting. It is exhausting. It truly is. I mean, that's why I'm really stoked about this conversation because we're not, yeah. we're not doing the usual and I really, really appreciate that. So thank you for that. Awareness. Thank you. I like big ideas. I don't want, you know, I've, I've, I've heard the same types of conversations. Yeah. I want to, I want to learn more about everything else. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Well, that was quite the rabbit hole for the first question. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So, I mean, we we talked about belonging some. Mm-hmm. So, so what is belonging, and and how do we evaluate something that is so emotional, yeah. so experiential? I don't. Well, can I flip the question to ask you? Why is it important that we evaluate and measure belonging? What is your as you're asking the question, your mm-hmm. end goal in doing so? Yeah. I think a couple of reasons. I'm I'm someone who is always looking at data, I, and okay. I like the data side of things. And is there a way that we can evaluate how likely is someone to feel like they belong here? And that gets really really hard. But I think the more we try and get there, the closer we can get to being able to better counsel a kid. That you know this place might say yes, you are welcome here, but according to students like you, whatever that may be, a lot of them are saying, yes, they're, they're welcome. And I think it comes back to this welcome, but not heard, mm-hmm. you know, they're invited in, they have great scholarship opportunities, but they don't feel like they belong. Okay. And they they try to have their identity erased, I guess, right. more than anything. either erased or highlighted only, right? Like mm, either yeah. you don't get to be, or you can only be, Yeah, you know, yeah. It, would that would that would tokenization yeah. be the right term there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And kind of but bucketed. Yeah. Bucketed, siloed. Yeah. It's so interesting this question. And I think that there's some data points actually that can point to sense of belonging. Right. But mm-hmm. I think there's so much that's packed into these data points that, that may or may not be helpful. You know? Yeah. Certainly retention of students of color. Like how many how many students from these communities make it to the end? Okay, but what's not in there? All kinds of other things, right? We know that. How many students are engaged in student leadership? What's the percentage of those? Like, who plays Mm -hmm. those roles? I saw this and I thought this was kind of an interesting way of looking at it. Who are the students on campus who have work-study jobs and their identities versus those who don't or who have research Mm -hmm. positions? So something that's based on need versus not. I I thought that was an interesting point that someone looked at. I have one other idea that I thought was kind of an interesting one, but I'm not sure. I'm a lot sure. of these I'm seeing connections to, to just economics. Oh yeah. Too. So, I mean, if you have two native students and one is low income, one is high income, they might have wildly different experiences. Completely. I mean, truthfully, it's, it's one of the reasons that I hate graduation rate as a metric of success, because we know mm-hmm. that people stop college most likely for financial reasons. Yeah. Right. Not lack of interest, not lack of ability, none of those things, not lack of quality at the institution, but lack of funding. Right. Yeah. If, and so perhaps this is a different question. If we looked at those metrics and somehow said, okay, you take out the financial issues, you know, who left us and, you know, did not have financial need or, or I'm not sure, but it's, I think these are really imperfect measurements in part because we're, we're coming from the space of student, you come fit in here. 
I wonder if a different way of framing the, the question isn't how do we know students belong, but how do we know that institutions are creating space? How do we evaluate mm -hmm. institutions on this versus asking individual students for their personal sense of belonging? Yeah. You know? That might be difficult too, because oh, totally. how do we evaluate the creation of space saying, well, we offer these clubs or we offer right. these opportunities. Okay. How easy is it to take advantage of? There was a fascinating study and I, I don't remember off the top of my head. So we're gonna have to go back and do research about institutions and who lived in what dorms. Students of color, students of without means were funneled gently or not gently to specific dorms that some dorms on campuses mm -hmm. were known as this is where the rich kids live. I wonder if that's one way of looking at a community. How segregated are your dorms? Do you know how segregated your living situation is? No. Right? Again, first draft thought. I don't know. I'd be curious too. Are you better off or worse off with that? Think of back in my teaching days of a student who, who's first generation college student, got a, got a scholarship to Harvard, went there, felt so out of place that he left. Yeah. Are you better off maybe when it comes to economics? Is he, would he have been, would he have had more community if there were other students there with his experience versus being lumped sure. in with students who will fly off on their private jet? Right. <laughs> I, did you read Ron Lieber's book, The Price You Pay for College? I'm not yet, year. no. Okay, it's kind of mind-blowing. And I swear I sound like a PR person for him, but I'm telling you, it's just such a great book. It's mm -hmm. not the typical, here's how you pay for college, here's how you find money. He starts out by saying, college is expensive. Everything tied to money is tied to emotion. And we don't mm -hmm. talk about the emotions that come with money. And that not, it's not just people who have emotions institutions have their own emotions about things too. So first he identifies that and then says, so then what is it that you're paying for in college? What are you actually paying for? And too often families will default to an education. Yeah, that's not it. So he lays out like 14 different points where he was like, you might, you might say your value from college is the community you're in. It's the mm -hmm. academic credential, you know, just 14 different things, right? Prestige is one of them. Okay, yeah. cool. You've identified this. You've, you've done this without emotion to it. Now, how do you find if the college is meeting those standards of value? How are they providing prestige? How are they providing community? How are they doing that? But to your point, one of the points that he raises is about the dorm segregation mm -hmm. and that some colleges think of diversity as it's my job as person of color to come teach you white people what it is, right? And he points out, you know, at places that have that attitude, at places where the dorms are so segregated, at places where you are so on the outside, if you value community, that's not it. And if yeah. you don't value community, you still need to look at that. So he draws a very clear arrow that value is more than just the cost and that there is other cost as well. So to go to your mm -hmm. point, is it more worth it for someone to get the, that credential? Is that credential worth not just the the place of the emotional toll does the emotional damage have more or less value than that name i think it's really hard for anyone to figure out yeah. it's really hard to figure yeah. out until you're in the thick of it and you understand exactly what that is to be the one person left in the dorms where everyone's going to ask them for the weekend yeah 
Yeah. I mean, is, is it, is the prestige or is the experience, is the education worth it at that point? And I think those things are tangible and can be looked at with cold hard data, right? Mm-hmm. Cool. Prestige is important to me. Well, let's drill into that. Why do you think it is? It will help me get my first job. Cool. Let's look at the data. Let's look at the mm-hmm. Fortune 500. Did they all go to that college? Nope, not even close. Okay. It will help. Prestige is going to help me get into graduate school. Let's look at the data. You can mm-hmm. go to med school. Here are the five most selective med schools. How many came from prestigious college? Not that many. So I think there are data points that can help people find their path to that value. But you have to be really kind of cold and clear-headed and honest with yourself about what you're seeking to get to that. Mm-hmm. That's Ron's book. It's fantastic. I wonder, is it diversity on paper versus a diversity in experience? that here is our here are our demographics and look how diverse we are but everyone is in their own little community of you know I only feel comfortable around people yeah. like me from my background or in my residence right. hall is that actually a diverse campus is that a diverse campus is that is that equitable campus is that a just campus yeah. right when you look at an institution you know belonging is everything every opportunity is available to me and I have access and I have equal shot I don't, that's not possible to a lot of colleges. Having something there, having a program, having something and having access to it are not the same thing. They're not the same thing, right? One is equality. One is mm-hmm. equity. Equality is everyone can do this internship, but equity is we're making it possible for everyone to do this internship by removing travel barriers, by paying for housing, mm-hmm. by... Um, taking away these criteria that make it difficult. Like it's, it takes a lot more work. I think about that sometimes with some of the majors that why in the world is it that so many children of doctors become doctors? I think there's that perceived barrier of, I don't know this process. I don't have the connections to get the residencies. I don't have the connections to get the interviews. And how many children of college faculty become PhDs and teaching faculty themselves. Like that's another path. It's not as quite as sparkly as I think the doctor path that there have been studies that show like, (laughs) like chances are if salaries are a little lower, (laughs) (laughs) I come from one of those faculty families and I'm the one who is not. So I can tell you, yeah, definitely. Definitely. We've had some weighty conversations here. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What? And trying to put this into tactical, making use of yeah. this. What's a good starting place for an institution Same. that wants to authentically create a space rather than just this marked idea of saying everyone's welcome? Because we all know if everyone's welcome, is yeah. anyone really welcome? You can't be for everybody. I'm going to start by thanking you for not shying away from the big weighty questions and not jumping up here. Because like I said, one of my favorite like party tricks is let's talk about this big idea. People are like, yeah, that's cool, yeah. lady. Um, thank you for not shying away from you that. That's that's a great. Thought. That's why, like, I mean, if we're not uncomfortable, if we're not trying to stretch ourselves, what's, what's the point? The point. Why that's just pat yourself on on the back? Because for some people, that's completely satisfying to them, and that's that's cool. I I, I love the question though, like, how can colleges present themselves authentically? Because I feel like, I feel like my career has been spent during the time period where colleges adamantly wanted to be everything to everybody. Yeah. I understand, and although I don't know if this is real or mythology, but there used to be a time where college is like, nope, this is exactly who we are. And I think perhaps the University mm-hmm. of Chicago was the last time we really saw that occur in terms of enrollment and marketing. 
and then we saw it happen. I, I feel like we still, to a degree, we see that with, with some of the very conservative Christian colleges. Yes. That say, if you want to attend here, this is who you have to be. That's a very, very, very valid point. You're absolutely right. But I do think one of the detriments, something that's been challenging as a counselor when I was working in admissions, is the con- the messages are the same. Yeah. The message points are the same. The pictures are the same. It's all interchangeable. A million years ago when I worked at WashU, I was very, very proud of myself. I, I rewrote our standard presentation and I felt very bleeding edge with how I approached it because I had come to mm-hmm. admissions from the world of politics and PR. So I was looking at it a little differently and I'm like, yeah, I just read the most kick-ass presentation. And we did that as an office for like a year. And then the summer rolled around and we were doing our interviews you know, for AOs. And part of our mm-hmm. process was asking people to do a 10-minute presentation for all of us. Several of those folks came from other colleges and they all gave the WashU presentation, but with their own college's name and they had never heard of WashU presentation. I was just so convinced of my creativity and we were being so innovative that yeah. everyone thought the exact same thing. And I was like, part of me was excited. Like, well, if we hire them, I have to do a lot of training, but yeah. that's not <laughs> good. Just make sure they get the right name. Well, because why? <laughs> but really, isn't that crazy? Like, how often can we sit in presentations or look at marketing materials and just put a different yeah. name on it and not know yeah. any different? And it drives me crazy when you know it's not true, too. Colleges where it's all, you know, the the TAs and GAs who are doing the teaching, they talk about the engaged faculty mm-hmm. and the small class sizes with the average class size of mm-hmm. 140. Right. <laughs> that might be small to some. But, you know, how refreshing would it be? And I mean this from like a truly positive way. How refreshing would it be if a university reframed that to say, so we have faculty here who are focused completely on research and on graduates, on graduate students. And we have really fantastic teachers here. Some are adjuncts, some are lecturers, some are graduate students. But they're focused on you. And these people Mm -hmm. over here who are at the fancy parking spots, they're not so much like, because I think about that, like there's so much like beating up on adjuncts, but the truth is they're really good teachers often. Yeah. Right. Like they have to be, they have to be, they have to hustle for this. I mean, they don't yeah. have, when you're working on one year part-time contracts, you have to be good. You have to be excellent to get rehired. Right. And mm-hmm. so I worry sometimes that, that that inauthenticity comes from inauthentic stories that we've told from the beginning that come from this mythology of higher ed that we haven't reframed. So rather mm-hmm. than saying like our engaged faculty, yeah, our faculty are engaged in research and here's who's teaching you. And that's not a bad thing because they're really great teachers. And I don't know. It's a different type of storytelling, but it is more authentic. It's more real. It's more reflective of actual yeah. experiences and supportive of the people doing the good work. Why would you denigrate the mm-hmm. adjuncts or the lecturers doing that? You know? Because people want to focus on the stats of full-time tenured faculty. I mean, you, you worked at, at yeah. independent schools, right? Yeah. How, many, how often would they say, I really want to have a lot of adjuncts? Here's how I would push back because I was really big on asking families reframe, like ask me the question you mm-hmm. think you should ask on the tour session, whatever. And I'm going to, let's, let's boil this down to what you're actually asking, mm-hmm. right? How many faculty do you have? I'm like, what you want to know is who's teaching, but more than that, like how are teachers rated? What are the classes? Are there sessions mm-hmm. outside? It doesn't matter if someone has tenure or not. That's usually driven by their research productivity, which has nothing to do with teaching. So if a family said, you know, says, well, we want to know, like, it's bad that they're adjuncts. No, what's bad is bad teaching. So then ask the question, can we see teacher evaluations? How many faculty get teaching awards? Who gets those awards? 
Do we meet with them? Like, I think finding that is far more interesting than boiling it down to a meaningless message point. It's like that dumb, like student to faculty ratio question. Yep. I mean, colleges include med faculty, football coaches, admissions people to blow up a yep. number that's meaningless. I, I did an experiment one time where I went through, I looked at the iPads data of number of faculty, number of students. I just hand calculated. Well, I didn't hand calculate. I had a spreadsheet calculate for me. Uh, the student to faculty ratio. Mm-hmm. And I looked at what they actually reported. Wildly different. Almost in no case were they the same. Not even the same universe. Yeah. There's a school that reported a 12 to 1 student to faculty ratio. And I'm looking at their numbers. If you hand calculate, it's 25 to 1. Okay, so what are we counting in there? Are we are we counting? <laughs> right, and and I I would ask students and families when I was still working in a high school. So let's apply that number. So here we are in fancy private school, extremely small classes. Our student to faculty ratio is never close to one to twelve, mm-hmm. even if you include all the coaches and nurses and all the staff. So then, how do you think a college is going to accomplish that? Like that's just not even a realistic number. No, you know. We would try and focus on what's your average first year class look like? Mm-hmm. What's your average class in general look like? Because that's what's actually going to be experienced. Right. Yeah. These schools that say 12 to 1, okay, when mean? you're telling me there's also 40, 50 kids in a class, right. how can it be 12 to 1? Right. <laughs> well, and, you know, my I'll use my dorky examples. I had two majors in college. I mean, I changed them a zillion times like everyone, but two majors and a minor. Political science and women's studies were my two majors. Glass blowing was my minor. As one does. As one does. <laughs> Some of these stuff is up there. But poli sci, one of the most popular majors, my classes were over 100. Women's studies, mm-hmm. the year that I entered, we were the first graduating class with the degree. So mm-hmm. 10 in my major. Glass blowing, you can't fit more than six people in a studio. But, but how are any of those numbers meaningful without that context? Yeah. You know, and I think we all need to get better at asking questions and digging into what we actually want to find out. That's, I think, one way for colleges to tell authentic stories. Not only do we need to get better at asking questions about what we're doing, our processes, our reasons, we need to get better at asking students questions and asking them what their next steps are really trying to get to the core of who they are and what we can do to serve them. We also need to understand to have empathy for the students and parents who don't know how to ask what they want to ask. If I want to just break it all down and say, okay, mm-hmm. I want to throw it out. I want to focus either this marketing piece, this section of the website. We want to have a starting point. What can we do to, to showcase it? How do we showcase who belongs, and where we have opportunities to grow still. Wow. I think what you're asking is how do we quantify the elusive fit? And then how do we break that idea? Is that a way of framing that, or am I over? I think so, yeah. And, and I mean, just show, there are going to be students who really fit in well, really do well. We're good at creating a space here. We're trying to create a space for these students as well. Yeah. How do we talk about that? How do that? you hard. talk about that? I think talking about that starts with the acknowledgement and awareness of who an institution is. Mm-hmm. Like being able to define that honestly. We, and I, I will pick on my institution of my alma mater, 
at no time would WashU have stood up and said, we are an institution of really, really wealthy families. <laughs> and if you're not really, really wealthy, we're going to do some things that are going to help you feel okay about it, but we're going to remind you with frequency that you're really not wealthy. And that's going to gonna do things to make you feel okay about it. I love yeah, we're going to do some things. Make <laughs> I would love to have someone actually say that. For sure, right? <laughs> but, you know, if you're not wealthy, you're going to join a student club and you're going to want to throw a party and your advisor is going to say, go ahead and just put that fee on your credit card and the university will reimburse you in two months. Things like that, right? So it just blows my mind that college student would have a credit card but <laughs> blows my mind that a university would think that it's that's the right way of handling that that yeah. a student would have enough money on a, on an available credit card and could wait two months to get a yeah. reimbursement when you're an institution that has one of the largest endowments in the country right <laughs> things like that like how do you you but you have to have the acknowledgement this is our culture because if you there's actually a point i'm getting to if you don't have that self-awareness to say, wow, we're a place that's really like a lot of really rich kids, you will wake up one morning and the New York Times will tell you on the front page that your institution has the lowest number of Pell-eligible students of all colleges in the country. Mm-hmm. That's not pleasant. Really not pleasant. If, yeah. if, if colleges are aware, this is who we are, this is who is around us, we see this, we acknowledge it. Like I think that actually goes a long way in helping fix ills. If you can't see and quantify what you are, you can't see what you're not. It takes the self-awareness. I think there's that that fear that we want to focus on the aspirational rather than the real. Yeah. You know, we we want to be a place where everyone feels welcome. Mm. Let's acknowledge where we are. <laughs> we would right. We I, I would push that. I'm gonna be a little more cynical. I think places don't want to be places where everyone feels welcome. I think places want to be exactly who they are and expect people to want that. Hmm. And yeah, everyone wants to call themselves the Harvard of the... Right. How annoying is that? I think there is more of a sense of welcoming but not belonging. Colleges Hmm. want to seem like anyone can go there, but once you get there, there's the expectation that you will fall in line of whatever the culture is. Hmm. Right? Yeah. And that students are supposed to mold to college as opposed to colleges molding to who their students are. How are we able to build this affinity and build this place for the schools that really do want to have a place where everyone can be themselves and still learn from each other and be their their authentic selves, which I think for 18-year-olds is hard enough anyway. I mean, that's true. I mean, but... But I think you saying that is something that's really just important to acknowledge because truly what you're saying, and I and I say this with absolute respect and love, is how do you build utopic communities, right? It's super easy for us because of where we work to point the finger at higher ed right now and be like, mm-hmm. oh, you should take responsibility for building these communities. But I'm willing to bet if you went to a Motorola factory, if you went to any number of institutions, communities, anything, I don't know why Motorola factory came out of my head. But <laughs> if you went to any any space, there would be concern and conversation about who belongs and who doesn't. Right? So it's super easy for us to point your finger at college right now. But what you're describing well is really utopia, right? How do you create any community where anyone can be that can be flexible enough to grow and change with people and still maintain sense of self? Not mm-hmm. only for the institution, but that others can maintain sense, sense of self. And that's a 
huge ask. And then you throw in being 18 where sense of self changes yeah. hourly, hourly, you know, and that's as often as your hair color. Oh my Lord. I think I had four different accents freshman year <laughs> and I'm Midwestern. Like I'm not supposed to have any accent. No, I think I tried all of them on for size. I definitely <laughs> claimed two different religions during college. Like that's what people do, right? Like you try, you, you yeah. try all these different things. Some of my identities were, on your own. right. And yet some I knew were like immutable, like no matter what, I was still rolling in as an Asian woman, as a multiracial Asian woman, like that was never going to change. Hmm. But those, you know, the second is being 18, I was trying that on. But so I, I, I'm punching on your question of how colleges do yeah. this, because I think really what I'm saying is the request that you and I very aspirationally are asking of higher ed is what we should be asking of humanity. Hmm. And yes, I would love to put higher ed at that high of a bar, but I don't know if it's fair that we ask them to do these things. I think even in my prior roles, we, we were growing in the diversity of our applications significantly, but then that question became, okay, how do we make sure we're bringing in people who feel like they can still belong? Because that's not right to bring someone in who immediately feels out of place. Right. And how do you not have this culture shock. I mean, when you're working at a rural college and you have students applying from LA and Chicago and Florida and Texas, it's a bit of a culture shock going to cornfields. So let's flip this question because we've talked about this so much in terms of identity, right? Which makes it kind of a big, heavy conversation. But there you are. You're a small college in rural Iowa. How do you say to the kid from LA, we're all things to everyone. How do you say to the kid who's like, says, I want an urban setting, (laughs) <laughs> we have a stoplight. <laughs> right. Like you acknowledge yeah. we have a stoplight. You joke it off, but you're like, maybe that's not it. Like yeah. I like we can't be an urban college yeah. for you. We're not the place for you. Right? And no one wants to say that. And no one wants to say that because everyone's so desperate for application numbers and blah blah blah. You mm-hmm. you can't be, if you are a small college in rural Iowa, you mm-hmm. can't be NYU. Yeah. You're just you can't live in those spaces. Yeah. So I think there's a fear too of, of telling someone you don't belong here that, I mean, they can, they can really, because if they really have their heart set on you and you know, based on everything they're telling right. you, it's the wrong fit. <laughs> right. You can't really just tell a kid, yeah, this isn't, this isn't it. Right. <laughs> well, and then from like the very cold, like marketing enrollment management perspective, it is not the job to decline an application and to tell someone, right? Like in theory, yeah. that's really not your job. Yeah. As a counselor, that might be my job, but in theory, admissions, that might not be your job, right? Yeah. So then you get the pressure to pivot it to, shit, how do we become all things, all people? I'm sorry. How do you, mm. but how do you... <laughs> do that then and then do you say to that kid from la looking at the college school in Malawi, no we only have one stoplight but we have <laughs> da, 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 da. well how does that replicate what you're describing mm-hmm. you know i think that it's okay for colleges to be specific and acknowledge who they are and not how they could be better i think honestly just in terms of the market that would go a really long way parents and students and people who work in the space are desperate for some kind of differentiation desperate Mm -hmm. and if colleges can't differentiate then they have to start justifying their price yeah there's a book i've referenced many times Mm -hmm. called let them eat cake that i always relate it to education it's about luxury marketing really but talking about why does someone buy a bmw instead of a hyundai they do the same thing it's called let them eat cake 
Okay, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna write this down on my whiteboard desk right now. <laughs> I, I am very jealous of whiteboard desk. Fantastic. Let them eat cake. So this is really fun that you describe it that way. Mm-hmm. Here's the thought process I've been playing in my mind, and I, I, I invite you to play. What consumer good is a on Maslow's list of hierarchies, like you need it to be successful mm-hmm. in this culture, is extremely expensive, but you don't actually know the closing price until you get to the end, and requires some kind of demonstration of character and fit as decided by an anonymous group of strangers. Can you come up with anything with that, Will, that matches that? Education fits the bill, but... It- yeah. <sighs> High-end co-op apartments in Manhattan. You would, uh, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's how narrow it is. Really? High-end, and I mean like, you know, eight-figure and up places. Mm-hmm. You you see the price. You mm-hmm. understand there's a process to it. But you submit co-op papers and they interview and decide if you fit. That's weird. <laughs> so is higher ed that way. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. What else matches that paradigm? Yeah. I guess I, I've always talked about how education has, no one knows how to approach it because you would never go to a restaurant and not expect to know what you're paying until the end. And that two people ordering the same steak might have different prices or or that you might get there and order your steak and not know what it costs. And then they inform you that you just don't get to eat. Yeah. We'll put you on the wait list for a steak. Right. Exactly. You can <laughs> sit here at the table, but you're going to watch everyone else enjoy their steak. And if we have yeah. enough left over, we're going to ask you to pay for it ahead of time <laughs> <laughs> to get the chance to eat it. Have a deposit. Seriously. Well, and then you have to pay to get a menu too, right? Right. The application fees are, are paying to see the menu. Absolutely. <laughs> And you don't know if you can afford the menu or if there's anything that you like to eat on the menu. I mean, it's really, we put so much faith into this system. At least with your BMW over your Hyundai, you know some details, mm-hmm. right? Yes, they both get you to the same place, but here might be some of the difference, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and we, we talked about that. I mean, in education, though, what's the difference between doing a four-year degree at a community college. There's community colleges where you can right. do that. Yeah. Four-year degree at a community college versus Harvard, Stanford. Right. What's the difference? Well, and I think like like Lieber's book points out, it boils down to what you actually value. Yeah. And without judgment, but what do you value, right? If you value having a degree only that you need a specific credential, then that's what you value. If you value prestige, network, then that's the value, right? But that, I think it goes mm-hmm. right to that. What are our values? I think the challenge with our culture and with the profession is that we've informed people of what they should be valuing without providing any evidence as to why or how to back that up. So we've denigrated that mm-hmm. four-year credential or degree coming out of the community college. We've said in every possible way that's lesser. And so for someone for whom that means for values, they need to feel lesser, right? And I think the big question is why? Why? Who's it yeah. protecting? I mean, if your if your goal is a diploma, a piece of paper, a credential, an entry point, because a lot of times a, a job mm-hmm. will just say 
you need a four-year degree. Yep. Instead of you need these experiences, you need these these talents, you need to be able to demonstrate these skills. If all you need is a degree as a check the box, then there really isn't a difference. Mm-hmm. If it's about the experiences you have, there might be. There might be. And it's, it's still entirely possible you'll have a better experience at the community college. Yeah, exactly. It's hard to gauge and it's hard to drown out the noise where everyone else is informing you of what you should value and that it's contradictory Mm -hmm. to your own. Yeah. You know, and I think about how many times I've heard families say, I won't pay for that college, but if it's Harvard, I'll pay that amount. And I'm like, but what are you paying for? And why would you make such a value judgment for knowing anything else that goes into it? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, what are you getting there? Sweatshirt? Cool. Go buy the sweatshirt. You can get them at Walmart. You don't even have to go to Harvard to do that. Like they market that name out <laughs> everywhere. You know? So yep. what? what is that? Yeah. yeah. I had a family one time who walked out on a tour. We checked all the boxes of everything they wanted, but we were less expensive than their high school. So their assumption was, well, you can't be any right. good then. For them, price was a marker. We've seen this in pricing models that some colleges yep. that have specifically reduced their price, like it's the luxury good pricing, right? It's mm-hmm. Louis Vuitton burning their bags instead of having a sale. You can't have discounted bags on the market. Why should higher ed be like a handbag, like luxury mm-hmm. goods this way? <laughs> and I say this as someone yep. who really loves a handbag and a luxury good. Like It's not <laughs> the model that we should use. It's not at yeah. all. But it is fascinating. And I wonder what it would look like. I think in the most cynical times, like I do wonder, like what would it look like if if colleges were just completely transparent? Like here's who we are. This is who we are. Mm-hmm. And I think about like random story. Uh, my One of my former colleagues loves to tell the story of this young man who was kind of struggling to wrap his head around college search. And so my colleague gave the young man the famous book, Colleges That Change Lives. Go home, mm-hmm. read this, think about it kid came in the next day and said, so thanks so much for the book. So I'm looking for like colleges that won't so much change my life because things are really good. And uh, how do I kind of maintain? And so we joked, wouldn't that be funny <laughs> to like have the book colleges that don't change lives or colleges that give a blank. And then the cover would just be a college fair table that's empty with no banner on it. And the <laughs> table tent that has the name of the school, but no one there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> how do we, <laughs> How do we acknowledge just to acknowledge like listen? So our priority is really just to get butts and beds and tuition. So <laughs> can you pay? You, you'll you'll get a diploma. You're gonna right. be the same person. I mean, I used to dream, <laughs> just from the flip of that, I used to dream as a counselor of writing honest letters. <laughs> Things like, listen, family pays tuition on time. The kid's not gonna graduate at the top of the class, but he's not gonna be a criminal. There we go. <laughs> Do you really need to know much more than that? Like, I, I so often I just wanted to like cut through the crap and just be efficient and say, "Here's what I'm pretty sure you care about," and I'm not sure why we need yeah. 500 words about other stuff. I want to know: Are there massive red flags we should know about? <laughs> That's it. And true, right? And yet, those massive red flags are the things that don't get reported, right? whether it's fear of lawsuit or the student's been allowed to withdraw and move along, like those tools, I think that we've built to say, Hey, this is to protect, this is to inform. They get so perverted and twisted around all the time. They do quite the opposite, you know? So I wish I could write the recommendation letter that says, you know what, this kid is full pay and the parents are exceedingly difficult. And I'm pretty sure that this kid kills puppies. 
I wish I could have written that letter. <laughs> right. And ethically, yeah. I desperately wanted to, but that's, you know, the fear of lawsuit, the fear of that is real. Yeah. Oh my. Authenticity is hard. Yeah. It comes at a price for everyone, sadly. And who's going to be brave enough to be the first one to go out on a limb and do it? Who who takes the leap without arrogance, but with humility and acknowledges <laughs> this I might land really hard on my face. And, yeah. Right? But yeah. I, I think about like the tour that I went on, which was at Berkeley. It was so beautiful. This sweet tour guide took us to every parking spot that's held for Nobel laureates because it is impossible to park. But if you were a Nobel laureate, it's one of the perks. You get a reserved spot. And so the student took us to like four of them. And I was like, I haven't seen a single car. And, he was, and the young man was like, I haven't seen a single car ever park in any of them. <laughs> and so I'm like, what is this message of we have Nobel laureates like on so campus? Like, empty I know, right? <laughs> like those things that we're proud of and told to be proud of when you, Scratch yeah. ever so gently. You're like, they're not on campus ever. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing this all back yeah. and thinking about Hack the Gates and, and the policy papers and everything there. But how are you finding ways to remove barriers for both college access, community building? Yeah. How do we make it easier? I don't know if we make it easier. I mean, it's just okay. barriers are there because people are invested in them. That's just the truth. How do we how do we make people more comfortable with yeah. being uncomfortable about them and having those conversations? Honestly, to me, like, I, and I really chewed on that question too. And I, I was like, what are my, I, I felt like I should have like some specific check marks, but this is really what I came to. To me in the last two years, starting with like the genesis of Hack the Gates and Forward, mm -hmm. what I have found to really move the needle is coalition building. Mm -hmm. It's collaboration across a range, a broad range of constituency groups and where I see the needle moving most is when those, when those collaborations put students at the center. And I don't mean mm -hmm. like the voice of people who represent students. I mean, actual students where I'm seeing the barriers held down, where I've seen the real work happen and the, and the cultural shifts in institutions is when that work happened. Is it student led change? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. But students are okay. there. So I'm going to tell you about this really cool project that we're working on that I think really okay. talks about that, but the announcement goes out. So it's a coalition that's called Reason, R-E-A-S-O-N, and it is led by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law. So big national organization and accept as a part of this coalition. And we're working in a handful of states to build a coalition, a broad coalition of interested people who don't work together on higher mm -hmm. ed issues with student groups at the center of it. So student groups of current students at, at flagship institutions and young alum inform and really drive the conversations. And then you have someone like me in there talking about enrollment management. We have policymakers and legislators and we have large, you know, organizations like Urban League, things like that. Mm -hmm. Students are the ones really like they're in the thick of it as much as we are. And I've rarely been in that space, usually. You know, someone taking an exam is not allowed to sit in with legislators to to think about how to craft a bill. Yeah, because they are there, the work we're doing is so much more rich and so much more tangible and real. 
because as like we're having conversations like what does it mean to feel belonging like those student voices are right there at the center saying here's how i when i felt like i belonged and here's when i didn't here was a moment when i worked with a faculty and that felt that i'm not so that's why i would say like really moves the needle like working in coalition and working in collaboration and making sure that the actual user is at the center of it not a representative of not someone on behalf of but the actual user yeah. That's, I, I love this coalition work that we're doing because like real stuff's happening it's, and it's happening like on a statewide level in several states and it's cool. students. Yeah. So I'm, ex- I'm really incredibly excited about that work. If I can put on the cynical hat for a second, yeah, please, which I don't like to do, but I will. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can borrow mine. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> will the students be heard or will they only have a voice? I hear you. And that's a very good question. And what I appreciate so far in the work of this group is that the students have very much claimed the space. Like they don't back down, but the, the team from the lawyers committee, the folks who are convening us are keeping the student voice right there too. And whenever we're not at the point here, we're talking about solutions. Like we're at the point now early where we're gathering information and starting to chew on ideas. They are very much at the center. Okay. I always wonder about sometimes if it, especially when you start bringing in politics and everything like that, is it, well, look, we have this mm-hmm. committee of students who informed yeah. it and uh, okay, are they there yeah. for photo ops or are they there to actually craft it? And I'll own this, Will. When we designed Hack the Gates, I kept saying over and over again, we're going to have all the constituencies, we're going to have all the users there, including students. And the one group I couldn't get there was students. Mm-hmm. And it was a massive failure on my part. Some of it planning, some of it naivete, but it was during the program itself when our facilitators from Creative Reaction Lab pointed out, mm-hmm. they said, you know, when you if you design a student program and no students show up, you have to ask what students were on the committee to help. And it wasn't specific to the event we were doing, but whew, that, was, mm-hmm. that, was a, that was a gut punch because then yeah. I immediately started my mind to do the inventory of, oh, this group of students, I tried to get there, but I didn't know that they were on break and would be flying home at that time. And this group of students, well, they couldn't go because guess what? It's an SAT Saturday. I mean, I did not have students at the table planning. Mm. And so all the assumptions and everything that I made made that part of it not work. So I hear you loud and clear, but from very, like, really personal experience with that too. Mm. And I felt like that was a failure on my part. Well, I will look for that and we'll link to it in in the show notes. I will send you the press release when the information comes out next week. Thank you. Yeah. Marie, (laughs) behind, behind the scenes here, Usually like 30 to 40 minutes yeah. for, a, for a conversation. We're saying an hour and 20 minutes. I know. Uh, I know. I, so I feel so bad. I'm so bad about tangents and no. not letting go of things and asking questions. <laughs> this is why it's, it's, it's a conversation. That's what yeah. I love. I mean, you can't, you can't schedule a conversation yeah. to be X amount of time. Hopefully. Not. And yeah, you know, it wasn't a small topic and it wasn't mm-hmm. small questions. It wasn't small answers by any means. From either of us. I mean, again, like I want to thank you, like not not just for letting me ramble, but for for having a conversation, for engaging in really big thoughts and not letting go. Thank you for that. I I, I like having the uncomfortable big conversations. Yeah. I don't know if we solved any major world problems, but if, if this can be a conversation starter and something to help people have these conversations. And if someone hears something, I want to hear the feedback and say, hey, I think you should have thought about it this yeah. way. Let's talk. Great. I mean, I yeah. like being wrong. 
yeah, I, I can't learn if I'm right. You know, it's funny. <laughs> I, I appreciate more and more and more people who challenge me. Now, I wouldn't have said that not long ago. <laughs> you know, why are you pushing so hard? I appreciate when someone challenges me a lot now because it, you're right, it pushes growth and it pushes thinking. And maybe you're changing my mind, maybe not, but at least you, at least you engaged. Far too often people don't either don't want to engage or they do in a way that's so stuck that it's not engagement, it's just shouting. Yeah. And you challenged me on a lot of those things. Thank you. I'm happy to. I, I had it was a fantastic conversation. I like the times where I have to sit and think and and we got there a lot today. We did, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Great, great for a Friday afternoon. A wonderful <laughs> way to spend a Friday afternoon, really. Thank you. Well, Marie. Thank you so much, so much for this conversation. I, I'm so appreciative of your time. I know how busy you are with wearing 20 hats. And yeah. This is really good. I hope we can do this again. I hope after you get feedback and pushback that we can come back together and chew on more of these big ideas. Yeah, I am for that anytime. If people want to reach out and continue the conversation, they have questions for you. They want to challenge you. How can they get in touch? Definitely. Easiest thing is my email address leaders, which is plural, L-E-A-D-E-R-S at acceptgroup.org. Check out our Facebook page, our public facing Facebook page, except uh, Mm -hmm. that's admissions community cultivating equity and peace today on Facebook. If you go, if you look in Facebook and search just accept, there's this like death metal band that I'm going to find them someday and see if they can write a song for us. Um, (laughs) On Twitter, we are accept group, A-C-C-E-P-T group. So yeah, that's how you find us out there in social media and email me. Mm-hmm. And I welcome anyone who wants to chew on big ideas. Yeah. And I'll link out to the Hack the Gate stuff. Definitely. Incredible policy papers there that, Isn't that the we've, best? we've read and discussed. And... I, I just have to, like this one little point of pride for Hack the Gates, because it does kind of push back on some of the truisms and admissions, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of we looked for people, we just couldn't find them. You hear this a lot in academia. So for Hack the Gates, we we produced eight policy papers. We had a team of 10 academics. Of those 10, eight were people of color. Only two had tenure. One has not even finished her PhD yet. And almost no one came from what we would call a fancy institution. And the truth is it took almost no effort to put together that all-star team who produced some remarkable work. So whenever panels, colleges, anyone says, oh, we, look, we just couldn't find them. I'm like, that's not true. You can if you want to. You can if you want to. If it's a, if it's a priority, it happens. So. I hope you stay healthy and stay safe and, and we're all good. You too. Thank yep. you.